the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Very good. Um, I wanted to talk with you about something that's classic St. John. There's two conferences I wanted to give. Uh, One is on the three covenants, and the other will be on the three foods. Um, And the three covenants was for right now. I think in reading through the Gospels, getting to know St. John, getting to know what is it that made St. John the beloved disciple, it's important to recognize the three covenants. And it should be, at least, a basic introduction also to the spirit of St. John. And since you're traveling with the brothers of St. John, it's good to get to know a little bit, at least, who they are. Um, If you're also looking at St. John, you can ask yourself, why did the Holy Spirit ask that the community of St. John be founded at this time, at this time period? St. John is looked at by the saints in general throughout the history of the church to be a saint that models for us what is the religious life. He was celibate all the way through, for example. That's an important point. To the difference of, for example, Peter. Peter who was married. He was married. And most of the apostles were married. Um, He was celibate. And not just the celibacy, but the very fact that in the Gospel of St. John, he is called the beloved disciple. And there seems like there's a special place in the heart of Jesus for John. It seems so obvious that there would be a religious community called the community of St. John that it's surprising that it only happened in these last years. It's surprising. Um, There is a cardinal who was in charge of all the religious life for the Universal Catholic Church who commented on that to us. That that was his biggest surprise because it seems so obvious. Pope John Paul II wrote an encyclical letter, if I remember correctly, that was apostolic, uh, that basically saying, what is the religious life? And the letter is called Vita Consecrata. And when he's looking at what is the religious life, he uses St. John as the example of religious life. And so it's interesting. St. John does not belong to the congregation of St. John. It doesn't. Our founder would say very often that if we don't live of it, the Holy Spirit will make St. John grow somewhere else. (laughs) That's no problem. Because St. John belongs to the universal church. But there are things that are special. And I think that if we're facing the times that we're in today, the world that we're in today, it makes sense that St. John would come about now. It makes sense. And... Why? Well, St. Louis Guignon de Montfort, whom many of the brothers and sisters love very dearly, um, who brought to us the uh, consecration of the Blessed Virgin Mary and all that, he uh, said that in the end of times, the apostles will all be very Marian or Mariel. 
they will all love Mary very much. And if you look at the gospel, the one who made it all the way, who stood at the foot of the cross and did not run away, did not run away, was John. And so that's important to ask, why did John not run away? You know? And why did all the others? Peter, I understand, because I can relate very easily with Peter. Peter is easy to relate with. Uh, Peter is a little bit of a Saul in him, you know? And Peter, he, uh, being a man's man, he wants to fix it all the time. And so there's so many points when, you know, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And he turns over to John and he whispers, figure out who it is. <laughs> you know? Or when Jesus is being arrested, he pulls out his sword and cuts off the ear of Malchus, the soldier. You know? He's a man's man. But the problem is his humanity, it doesn't provide enough strength. His humanity, as strong as it is, doesn't provide enough strength for him. So when he sees everything falling apart, like sometimes we can see in the church where everything seems to be falling apart. When he sees everything like that he conceived of, like that the church should be glorious. When he sees all of it falling apart, he doubts. And why does John not doubt? I don't know. But I can give you some indications. I can give you some indications. That will be one of my questions when I make it to heaven. You know, all the questions you have will be answered in heaven. If you don't have any questions, then they won't be answered. Ah, some of them will be, the main ones will be answered. The main ones will be answered anyways, even if you didn't have them. But, like, for example, if you want to know, if you're wondering incredibly about what it was like for Mary to hold the baby Jesus when he was three years old and when he was, et cetera, taking care, when she was taking care of because she knew that he was God, those kind of questions, they will be answered in heaven. You can't know them too much on earth. Now, what is it that made John, John? Well, we could talk about a lot of things. We could talk about the, fa- the, the th- different qualities that he had. That's also very interesting, and that's another three. Three foods, I said, and three covenants, and now there's three qualities of John. And that's very interesting. He is very useful. You know, he's very useful. He was very per- pers- perspicacious. I forget how to say it anyway. Perspicace. Um, it, perspicacious, I think. It's been a while since I said it in English. And which means that he was quick. He saw it with the heart of, he saw it with his heart. He was intuitive. He got things. He figured it out. Um, in his youth, he had this great uh, desire to run towards Christ. If we're looking at those kind of things, that's also very interesting to figure out what are the qualities that lead us to Christ. It's very loving. But I wanted to talk about three things that he himself reveals to us that are different and that show us how to remain faithful to the cross. You know? How to remain faithful. Um, And I think that the most obvious one is the covenant with the Eucharist. The covenant with the Eucharist. So I should write that one out. Covenant with the Eucharist. The first one 
Note that for John, he was at the Last Supper, and you have that famous moment where he sees Jesus washing the feet. He receives the body and blood of Christ, communion. And Peter whispers over to him, like I just said, figure out who it is. Remember that John, shortly before that, because remember they were only with each other for three years, was called a son of thunder. He was very fervent. And when they're going to the village and they saw that... uh, All these people are denying him, denying Christ. He says, Lord, why don't you call down thunder and lightning upon this town and destroy them? You know? And uh, Jesus says, okay. Uh, He just kind of moves on, you know? It's like, okay. Um, So he's a fervent man too, like Peter. That's why Peter whispered to him, figure out who it is. But notice there was a shift. There was a shift that had to happen in his life. And it was like he went from the world of thinking too humanly to resting his head upon the heart of Christ. Because that's what he did. He literally went from listening to Peter to literally turning over, and that's the moment when he actually rested his head upon the heart of Christ. And there's a famous saint. What was her name? Ah, I'm horrible with names. But nevertheless, in the, I believe it was in the 1300s, who received a vision and asked John what it was like to hear the beating heart of our God. And she had the experience of hearing the beating heart of our God. And she was a prelude to Paris le Monial, a prelude to St. Margaret Mary. She had a great effect upon the church too in talking to us about resting our head upon the heart of Christ. And... It was at that moment that he, John, began to understand that the way that Jesus is seeing this is different. So he whispers to Jesus, who is it, Lord? And Jesus doesn't say it's him, go get him. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Notice what he does, though. He says, he does a gesture of love for Judas. He says to Judas how much he loves him. And in our culture, the remnants, uh, well, Western culture, I don't know. if you, In Asian culture, I don't know what you do anymore. But it uh, depends on where you are in Asian culture. Middle East, they still do it. Um, they, in our culture, the Western culture in general, we have remnants of what Jesus does. We do it in weddings. At wedding cake, you cut the wedding cake and the bride and the groom feed each other. They feed each other. In the Middle East, still to this day, for example, even in Ethiopia, too, uh, it's normal for a man to feed a man. When I went to Ethiopia, people were feeding me because I'm a priest and they're very respectful, so they put things in my mouth. <laughs> it's very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable, very uncomfortable. But it's a gesture of love. It's a gesture of kindness. It's a gesture of respect. Um, it's a beautiful gesture. And in his time, too, it was a gesture of love. And so what, he does, what does he do? Jesus, while John turns over and asks, who is it, Lord? Jesus says, it's the one who I'm going to dip the bread and the oil and give it to him. And he understands from the heart of Jesus. He's no longer just thinking in the head. He's thinking according to the spirit. And seeing that somehow all things will be okay. 
that I don't understand it. At that moment, he stopped trying to understand. That was a very important point. Because before, Peter and him are trying to understand how is this possible. We've got to fix it. You know? He stopped trying to understand. And he started to trust that everything will be okay. That God is in control. That Jesus has this under control. That he's allowing Judas to do this. Why he couldn't figure it out? He was deeply wounded and I'm sure he was shook very hard. Because he isn't immaculate. But not understanding the why of it all. He trusted. And he begins to see that this is all part of the plan of God. Not that, again, he also understood that it wasn't that God wanted Judas to do it. Because if you read the text, it's really beautiful. Because it's as if Jesus is giving Judas another chance to say, no, I'm not going to do it. That's why he does that. It's not just for John that he dips the bread into the oil and gives it to Judas. It's above all for Judas that he does that. To say to Judas, I do love you. Do not do that. And Judas then, he denies him. He betrays him at that moment. He had already kind of chosen, right? But he reaffirms the choice, denying the love of Christ. And so literally in scripture, right after that, it says, and the devil entered into him and it was night and he went out. It's a very powerful moment. And it's at that moment that Jesus says, a new commandment I give unto you to love one another as I have loved you, not as you wish to be loved. Not as, yeah, as a human would want. It's very beautiful because he loved Judas unto the end. And remember, what he's going to do too is he's going to give him a kiss. Judas will betray with a kiss. And up to the end, he's going for Judas's soul. He's going for his soul and not trying to control Judas's actions. That's also an important point. That God doesn't try to control your action. He tries to woo your soul. To woo your soul. Because by controlling your actions, he might lose your soul. And so he allows Judas to betray. And John, he's able to start to survive the cross. To stay, stand firm at the cross. Stabat John. <laughs> stand firm at the cross. Because of the mystery of the Eucharist. Remember that he reveals this at the Last Supper. This is the moment of the Last Supper. He's revealing to us this special covenant, special bond, a special way of uniting ourselves to God, which is through his heart given to us in the Eucharist. Without that, you don't have John. John, at the core of who is the beloved disciple, is the one who reveals to us in the strongest way possible that Jesus is truly present in the Eucharist. He's the one that says, if you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. In John chapter 6. So, that's non-negotiable, I think, today. 
If we ourselves are going to survive in a world which is often chaotic, in a church which goes through many upheavals, and our lives go through many upheavals, our lives don't even have to look in the universal, we can look at the particular at our lives, when we worry about our children, or we worry about our families, or we worry about our parish, or whatever it may be. What is the thing that allows us to stand firm? And John, at the end of his life, he writes this gospel in order to tell us this. He's the only gospel that reveals this. The only one. And he does it at the very end. is the very last writing in the Bible. This was after the book of Revelations. This is the last thing that is written. And he writes it to us because he's seeing that we might be losing this. Losing sight of this. Losing sight of the sacred heart. You know? It's John that revealed the wounded side. But then there's a second one. Because the fathers of the church and pretty much everybody... Everybody who's spoken about it also says that the reason why he's able to survive at the foot of the cross is because of Mary. If you ever see the movie The Passion of Christ, it shows it pretty well. In every time you see Our Lady, there's a certain peace. Even when Jesus looks at Mary, he finds the strength. He's being flagellated. He's being flagellated. And he has lost all physical strength. And he and his mother, his eyes meet. And he finds the strength again. His mother meets him on the way of the cross. And the moment he meets his mother, he says that famous quote from the book of Revelations. This is in the movie, rather. He says the famous quote from the book of Revelations. Behold, I make all things new. And he gets up once again. But it shows it well because there were a bunch of theologians, Catholic theologians, working with him on that movie. Uh, It shows well what we've always held is that um, because of the Immaculate Conception, we know that Mary was at peace because it was sin that would divide her soul and make her doubt. She was at peace. She was deeply tormented. A sword pierced her own heart, right? But she also trusted. She didn't go, I don't understand the why. (laughs) But she didn't understand the why. But she made that act of faith. And so because John was able to stand next to her, under her wing, he was able to stand at the foot of the cross. So important is this that Jesus will literally give her as a secret. He will literally give her as a secret to the whole church. Note that Mary, in the, in the Gospel of St. John, is the one who initiates the apostolic life of Christ. She's the one that gets him to do his first miracle. She's the one that says, They have no wine. <laughs> Didn't you notice? No, but she says, they have no wine. She's the one that gets him started. And she's the one that's going to be there at the end. And Jesus is going to look down at the very end. It's one of the last things he does. Last things he does. At the end, right after this, he's going to say, it is finished. 
No, I thirst. It is finished. One of the very last things he does, while he's dying at the cross, he could have done it beforehand. He is God. He would have remembered. He would have remembered. He purposely does it at the foot of the cross. And he purposely looks down and he says something even that would be a great sacrifice for him. Because, you know, when you're suffering, you want to be with the person that is around you. And she was a great consolation for him because the rest of the world had denied. She's going to turn to him and turn her regard, Mary's regard, towards his beloved disciple. And the beloved disciples regard away from Jesus to Mary. Not really away from Jesus, though. But but it is in that moment to include someone else in this. That Mary might include the church in her heart. And that we, in this offering, might unite our hearts with Mary. He says, Behold your mother. Behold your son. So that, you know, that famous moment um, Michelangelo did so well where um, he, he sculpted Mary in that famous Pieta where he sculpts her with a 16-year-old face, you know, because she was 16 when she had given the body over. And now she's, she receives the same body that she had given. And also... Notice the position is like she's holding him like that. Almost like a priest. Literally a priest, actually. Because she is priest, prophet, and king, as are we all. She offers him to the Father. She's like the altar, which through our baptism we all are. Because we all offer him. Remember that uh, icon uh, painting that we saw uh, for the Sacred Heart? where Our Lady is right there. Remember how we're all, all of us went, ooh, ah. Yeah, where the hands are almost offering to the Father the heart of Jesus. Offering to the Father the heart of Jesus. But how are we going to learn how to do that? It's because we're not alone. It's, not, it's important that the second one be a covenant because, you know, like the Eucharist, We're not alone. We have the actual heart of Christ here, given to us. So too, we are not alone. We have a a mother. We have a mother. And that mother is there to make sure that at the darkest moment, when everything is completely black, that we never forget that there is a light that shines. The light shines in the darkness. And she is there. She's the one that is going to hold us up and bring us to him. Because if it's just an idea, it's not worth it. It's a person. And it's a covenant. And that's why it's so important to have this consecration to Mary. Because it's through Mary that we find the quickest way to Jesus. She's the elevator and not the stairway. She's the elevator to get up real quick to Jesus. And so the second one was that. 
And I think that this trip, those two themes are incredibly important. Those two themes, you'll notice, we're gonna, we already have the sacred heart. Um, and it's a theme that will come back and again and again, because at the very end, we're going to end the pilgrimage with the sacred heart again, um, with uh, Paris, Le Sacre-Cœur, the famous, the famous uh, church that we already spoke about. But we also are going to at least three apparition sites, if my memory is correct, right? And one of them will be tomorrow. We're going to La Salette tomorrow, I believe. I believe I get confused at times. And then, of course, Lourdes, and then four apparition sites, then Pelvoisin, and then uh, Rue de Bac in Paris, four apparition sites of Our Lady. So it also is a core part of this pilgrimage, and it's walking with Mary to Jesus, and also accepting her to teach us to have the heart of Christ. So notice, too, that when he looks down and he gives to John, his mother, it says he looked down and he saw the disciple whom he loved. He doesn't give a name. He doesn't say give to John. And that's important. John knew when he wrote it that this was for something, was for all. This was for all those who wish to be a beloved disciple. The third one is the covenant with Peter. The covenant with Peter is also very beautiful. And in touching I would like, on that, I would like to just touch on two passages. One was right after the resurrection, and the other is the very end. The very end, of, uh, so the last passage of the Gospel of St. John. The first thing was right after the resurrection. John and Peter hear from the women that the tomb is empty. John, being younger, runs to the tomb more quickly. But they both run together. Peter and John run together to the tomb. John arrives just before Peter. He looks into the tomb, and the gaze is very important. He looks into the tomb, but he does not enter. He allows Peter to go in first to confirm And once Peter goes in, he follows. And that has been commented on and commented on in the history of the church. And it's very important because the contemplative, the one who wants to rest his head on the heart of Christ, the one who wants to stand at the foot of the cross with Mary, often sees far, often runs quickly, often wants to be there with Christ. But note that John had the prudence to not enter, and to trust the authority of Peter. To trust that even though this man had denied Christ three times, to trust him. 
to trust Him. To trust that God will somehow work. And to walk with Him to the resurrected one. To walk with Peter. And it's something that is very interesting because, you know, the church started out cracked. And we haven't stopped being messed up since. There's that famous cliche joke that if you haven't heard, you'll hear it now. Um, about this, uh, I believe it was a, a Jew in Paris. I've heard different versions of it. Um, he was a very successful businessman, and he um, was thinking about converting. And he, you know, he's talking with the Cardinal of Paris about it. Finally, uh, his business led him to travel to Rome, and it was about a six-month trip. And the Cardinal's sitting there thinking, no, if he sees the way Rome is, he'll never become a Catholic. And he goes and he comes back and he says, ah, now I have to become a Catholic. And um, the cardinal goes, what? What happened? And he said, well, I realized that anything so corrupt that has lasted for so long, it must be from God. <laughs> and there's a grain of truth in that from the very beginning. Um, because if we lead into that second that second. Passage which I was speaking to you about, we'll find something very beautiful. That Christ, he's going to appear on the shore while they're all fishing. It's interesting. Typical men, in the sense that they don't know what to do and they're they're frustrated and they're confused, perhaps, and they don't know what to do with their lives. So what do they do? They go fishing. (laughs) And and so. They're off fishing, and Jesus is on the shore. And note, who is it that notices that it's Jesus? John, the beloved disciple again. Love makes you attentive. And so he says, it is the Lord. And what does Peter do? He jumps into the drink, into the, jumps in the water. Jumps in the water, yeah. And what does he do? He swims right over. He gets out, then he realizes he forgot about the nets, and he helps them pull in the nets. Helps pull in the nets. And then they realize that Jesus didn't need the fish. He has already some fish cooking. And so they go over, and and they share the meal together. And then there's that famous part. And you know, Peter must have surely been very conscious of his denials. And his unworthiness. And that must have been part of the reason why he went fishing. Because he didn't know how to deal with it. But having denied Christ three times, Jesus goes up to him and gives him three acts of love. He says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? And by that time, he's realizing three for three. And now he's feeling like, oh, wow. And it brings back everything, right? And so he says to him something a little bit different. He says, Lord, yes, you know all things. You know that I love you. And there's some beautiful parts of that because it it says um, that Jesus says, 
do you agape me? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, I filia you. So he responds with a different kind of love, which would be another conference for another day. But that passage is very powerful. Peter saying, figuring out that, you know, he had greatly wounded Christ. Now he's very sensitive. And Jesus says to him something that's very important. Let's read it. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you girded yourself and walked where you would. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish to go. What happened at the cross? Jesus right here is explaining how Peter will live of the cross. He didn't go. That's what happened. Peter didn't go to the cross. When he was young, he girded himself and walked where he willed. But when he is old, someone else will gird him and take him where he does not want to go. At the end of his life, he, there's going to be the, the persecutions in Rome. And even then, he escapes. He runs from the cross. He leaves Rome. And on his way out, he sees Christ walking back up. And he says to him, Quo vadis? I am going back up to Jerusalem to be crucified again. And Peter understands. He turns around and he asks to be crucified. He allows himself to be crucified, but he says, I am not worthy to be crucified like Christ, so crucify me upside down. And so he's crucified upside down. So then this passage says, Another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish to go. This he said to show by what death he was to glorify God. In the end, he will be glorifying God by following Christ to the cross. And it will take Peter his whole life to follow Jesus to the cross. John was different, right? He was the only of the apostles that was not martyred. He was boiled in oil. He came out like a baby. (laughs) Like a baby. Uh, and so the emperor freaked out and sent him off to an island. I figured something's going on here. And so he turns over. Peter, realizing that this one hadn't denied, so he has this great place in the heart of Christ. He says, well, what about him, Lord? What about him? You know, you've asked me because of my denials, because of what I've done, to go and feed your sheep, to take care of your lambs, And that will be my reparation, my penance. What about him, Lord? What about him? And Jesus says, what is it to you if I wish that he remain until I come? As for you, follow me. And so, then John adds this little thing. He says, this does not mean that this disciple is not supposed to die. (laughs) (laughs) But... What is it supposed to be? What did he say exactly? Okay. This saying spread abroad among the brethren that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? There's a mysterious bond between Peter and John. 
where John completely respects and follows the authority of Peter. But John has his role. That is to wait for Jesus, to rest upon his heart, to long for Jesus, to live of what we call a contemplative life, to rest his head upon his heart, to take care of Mary until Jesus comes for him. And that's what happened to him in the very end of his life. uh, When he was too weak, the legend has it, that they would carry him into the room and on kind of his bed. And he would repeat, God is love, God is love, God is love. And so the three covenants, and it's those three pillars, those three covenants that allow us to remain faithful today. And I think if you take out any one of those three, you won't be able to stand. And it's a message for the universal church. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.